Oh, would you look at that? There's a new episode of the Blackcast on my phone, ready to play right now. Listen in the Blackcast. Welcome to the Blackcast. We've got another pair of great musician interviews, something that's actually going to be quite common this month of April 2021. All these interviews that you'll hear over the next few weeks are available as videos right now on the Blackcast YouTube page. So feel free to find them over there. And while you're there, subscribe to the Blackcast YouTube channel. That's B L A D T C A S T. You can also like the Blackcast on Facebook and follow at Blackcast on Twitter. As for this week, later on I'll talk to musician Don Miggs about his current project, Whole Damn Mess, and a great song they have. But first up, I'm going to catch up with the guys from Fastest Land Animal, who were on back in Blackcast number 423, but at that time they were using aliases and trying to keep their identities a secret from the world. But now, without further ado, all can be revealed. Joining me now are the guys from Fastest Land Animal, and uh, this time uh, we can see them. For those of you that are uh, watching on YouTube, there is a uh, an earlier interview I did with the guys uh, about a little bit more than a week ago, and uh, it's an audio only, which we'll talk about why that was audio only in a moment, and uh, we'll go uh, clockwise. Uh, let's see, we've got uh, Andrew over there, uh, the way that I'm looking. Now you guys might see it differently, but that's what it looks like. Uh, in my square. Uh, and uh, down below Andrew is not John. And uh, you just got some wavy lines there. So I want to make sure I get your name correct, oh, sir. Yeah, <laughs> sorry about Johnny. That, that's, and that's uh, Johnny Blaze. Uh, it is. Yeah. And uh, continuing uh, the, the, uh, the clock is uh, John. Uh, John and uh, Johnny and Andrew, it's great to see you guys. Uh, last time we talked, we did, we did not see you. Only. Yeah, and somebody gets to be Ann B. Davis right in the middle, and they get to they get to clean up a little bit. Uh, so the last time we talked, uh, we talked about and the fastest land animal is the band name. That's the name of the album, and the album is out now. We're talking on March fifth, so it's out today. So people, anybody can get it. I assume all the ways that people get music anymore, which. Uh, yep is decreasingly you know go to a store and pick up a physical thing i mean i know that there's a, a store yeah what's a store and, and what's a cd and and you know most people know what vinyl is but uh they don't always want to spend the money on it so when we we spoke the last time uh you guys were uh, using uh, aliases and you guys had some fun backstories so i'm going to start with john and we'll kind of uh, go from there talk about 
the out the idea of doing this band in a way where you guys were basically going out there as these characters and you know we spoke last time you did the sock puppet video and then you had the video where you guys had tvs on your heads so it was like who is this band or as, as every bad comedian with the, an impression of jerry seinfeld says who are these people that's basically what we were yeah. going on with this yeah i mean there was a band uh i think they're still around called the residents um, i don't know if you remember them and they used no one knew who they were they had big eyeballs on their heads now that you mention it yeah i do remember that yeah yeah right so um you know we had been out there for a while um the other band that we're mostly all in is called the cringe right and we've been touring and you know the cringe is a more of a tradition traditionalist rock band you know like um we would tour with motley Crue and alice cooper and and um we kind of knew if the cringe came out with an album how it would resonate uh what kind of traction we would get online and uh other places so i wanted to do almost an experiment to see if we totally hit ourselves no one knew who the people were behind the band and just let the music um speak for itself and see how how it resonated and how what kind of traction would we get uh without anyone knowing who we were and that's what we did with this album and plus i always i had <clears throat> before i even came up with that brilliant idea uh i just liked the name fastest land animal and almost wished i had come up with that instead of the cringe, which <laughs> I don't know, the cringe isn't as cool a name as Fastest Land Animal, in my opinion. So, uh, and Fastest Land Animal, the name just lent itself to uh, a type of music, punk rock that I love. So I had this dream for a few years, I'm gonna do a punk rock album. I'm gonna call it Fastest Land Animal. Then uh, the let's do it anonymously layer of it came in and we followed that through. And then it actually lent itself to that, just given the world we live in, when we're all socially, I mean, we're, we're, we're like sitting at home all the time now. Yeah, sure. Um, and recorded the album remotely, and we can't really tour at all. And it would be difficult to do music videos together. So uh, let's just go full boat and be like these, you don't know who they are in the band. And then that let, you know, people had theories online that we were this band or that band or the other band and uh, members of, of certain bands. And uh, that was kind of fun to see how that evolved. Yeah, I uh, because of, uh, I've worked before with the, the publicist that's uh, representing you guys, uh, I had guesses on what band I thought it was. And uh, I was completely wrong. Uh, you guys are not great white. Um, but uh <laughs> Because they and, and the reason why was because they had changed their singer, uh, I, you know, since the last time they did an album. And I'm like, well, sure, why not? And, you know, John, you and I were speaking before we started uh, recording the last time that, you know, it's not unheard of. I was telling you about in the late 80s, Donny Osmond had a huge hit that he was that was released as like mystery artist, because at that point, nobody was going to be like, you know what we should do? You know, Z100 in New York wasn't going to play a new Donny Osmond record. But when it's like, oh, this is catchy. Oh, and we don't know who it is. Oh, that's cool. And then, you know, the ultimate like, you know, punked or candid camera was uh, <laughs> we got you to play a Donny Osmond record. And uh, so, you know, I mean, it, it can definitely be effective because it's, you know, look, the, I, I, I listened to the whole album uh, over the last day or so. I listened to it a few times and I, I really enjoyed it. I would enjoy the album either way. I can understand somebody coming across it and it's like, wait, who are these guys? What, you know, wh wh what's this deal? And and so I, I, I'm wondering, 
what kind of reactions you guys got? Did you, did you do a lot of interviews like the one we did where you guys were all there in character? Uh, let me ask yeah. you, Andrew, because uh, uh, the one that we did didn't go great uh, because I think you you were Shark Samuels or am I wrong about that? I'm Shark Samuels. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and this is the, this is this is like the big moment when Spider-Man pulls off his mask and is like, yeah. I'm Peter Parker. I've been Spider-Man since I'm 15 years old. Yes, I yeah. am Shark Samuels. Uh, but so you had you were going to use like a, a shark. I had voice. the Jaws theme song. Yeah. Hewed up in Pro Tools and. <laughs> you know wonders of technology airpods everything canceling out everyone's background noise now it just canceled out my whole my whole plan so you guys are like yeah. i can't hear you and i'm like what this is perfect this was great yeah. so but, yeah. did the shark work other times or did you just like i can't use the shark voice no and... the shark had to be abandoned at that point oh. so i just pretended to you know be a human living in a shark and uh, <laughs> which you know did like our it best worked. It worked for Chevy Chase, you know, to just have the, the, the check. Yeah. You know, Candy Graham. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. And uh, I, I think that uh, the, the, you know, the personalities, uh, you know, the names and the backstories were all fun. Uh, and then Johnny, uh, I'm, uh, I'm sorry. I forget you know, the shark Samuels kind of, I, you know, look, I forget John's fake name, but shark Samuels is the one that stuck with me. So Johnny, who, who were you? And, uh, was there, was there a gimmick you were going to use? Was it supposed to sound, you know, like a weird voice Were you supposed to do, you know, a character? What, what was the, the plan? Yeah. Uh, I mean, listen, I have a hard enough time being myself. So <laughs> trying to pretend <laughs> to be someone else was, uh, definitely not my forte, but, um, you know, we got through it. That's fair. Uh, and yeah, I think that, uh, you know, and, and I don't know, to me and, you know, John, you and I spoke again before we started the last time. It's just like, look, it's a fun idea. Let's just run with it. You know, not like trying to trying to prove like, wait a minute, your name isn't Shark Samuels. But um, uh, just a little behind the scenes thing for people on the video. Uh, I will show uh, the text that I sent to Jody, your publicist, because when you guys came on Zoom, this was what I saw on the screen. <laughs> so right away, I saw, uh, yeah, we had the awesome zombie uh, Bill Murray, but yeah. I saw your names. And so I was like, oh, okay. And then I looked and I'm like, all right, well, I'm not going to talk to them about their real names and stuff because that's not the point of this. So I was just like, oh, make sure that they change that for the next one. Because I didn't post the video. Nobody saw it. I just, you know, I put it in the show and, and all that. So uh, John, did you do uh, did you do a fair amount of uh, in character uh, promotion for the uh, for the album? Uh, over yeah, there? and it's funny you were uh, one of the first, if not the first, interviews that we did in character. And immediately after that interview, Shark or Andrew called us all up and he said, "Change the name on your uh, display name on Zoom." <laughs> yeah. We like, oh, duh. Anyway, yeah. yeah, we did. That's like we did all of that and it was it was fun and it was like kind of weird but funny yeah there's plenty of times where i do the show live and i would have been streaming but since it wasn't video i didn't so you know nobody saw it you know really no harm no foul except uh you know it uh it, it uh answered my questions uh you know uh pretty quickly but uh look i think it was fun and look when you have a a, a fun gimmick like this uh, uh you know uh, and uh, to me it's a gimmick but i i don't even mean that as a, as a way to diminish it you know i think it's it's a hook more than a gimmick because a gimmick has a, a negative sense to it. I think, you know, it, it definitely, I think it's more attraction. Did you feel like 
you got to do some press that maybe you wouldn't have gotten to do because it was like, and it's not even that, you know, uh, you know, somebody dislikes any of you guys. It's just, you were able to get some attention. Did you guys feel like, you know, you were, it, it, it had the desired effect where it got more attention for the band, not knowing who you guys were. I think so. I mean, Andrew, you're, you're, you're looking at the metrics more on a daily basis than I am. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, the whole, the whole plan behind this was to, you know, not have um, anything any of us have done in the past or who we are influence the music at all um, and to see what the feedback was. And then that started kind of, you know, playing into the, the whole um, anonymity um, uh, was, was working for that. So people were starting to speculate, is this Green Day? Is this Eagles death metal? And that started to work to the point where, you know, just this week we're all discussing do we just not ever tell people who we are and just sure. keep this roller coaster going on? Because this is fun, you know? Um, and yeah, then I, I could have sold that. I could have sold that screen grab with your real names. Like when people got pictures of kiss without That's right. makeup in the seventies, I'm like, oh, totally. I don't know. I've got you this. Been the guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then this week we were discussing, uh, why don't we just reveal ourselves as total new characters? And that was a, a good, yeah. a good Johnny blaze uh, idea. And, you know, have the dead president's masks on from point break. And, uh, but I think Kim would have, uh, our publicist maybe, uh, would have had a, a problem with that. So, yeah. Uh, but you look, and ultimately it comes down to, you know, if you did this and then, you know, you, people listen to the album and it, it wasn't, it wasn't good and they didn't like it. I think that, uh, you know, it helped you had two, uh, two great songs out the first two songs on the album, uh, and it is fastest land animal and it's uh, now available. Uh, so let me ask you, Johnny, uh, in terms of the actual music, because you said, you know, you're, you, you uh, were only so comfortable being yourself in interviews, being a character was, was a, a little bit uh, of, of a, of an ask, but uh, you were a good sport and played along with it. But uh, in, in terms of actually making the music, was uh was there a, 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 this concerted effort to let's do something different than what we've done before you know were you guys just feeling something different right now or or what was it johnny uh in terms of trying to be different from our other projects yeah was it yeah i mean it, it, it did that come you know did that come before it's like oh this sounds different let's let's use a different name uh why do you think the material sounds so different right now um well we definitely wanted to go for more of a you know, punk rock thing and, you know, not maybe as classic Rocky sounding as the other stuff we've done in the past. Um, and yeah, we kind of just, you know, tailored uh, the sounds of the record and the gear and stuff towards that. So. Yeah. And uh, in terms of the actual recording, Andrew, uh, you know, John alluded to it. Uh, did you, and I, I did ask this uh, in character, but uh, I, I don't know if I can trust some of the answers that I got. Uh, so did, uh, did you guys just record separately and uh, share the tracks? Did you, you know, I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways to do it. And I don't know that, it, you know, I talked to a musician uh, earlier this week and, you know, everybody was like in the same studio, but they were all in their own booths. You've heard about other yeah. bands who, you know, they all get tested and quarantined together before that, you know, so there's a lot of different ways to do it. But what did you guys do? Yeah. So, so technology has obviously uh, come a really long way, really quick during, during COVID and, and the quarantine. So we're all in different parts of the country now. Um, we are all in our remote studios. You know, we're all gear guys too. We, we just love all of the intricacies. Um, and 
So between Zoom, like we're on now, where we can all talk to each other and communicate, and a really cool plugin for uh, Pro Tools or Logic called Audio Movers, we're able to literally sit behind a drum set, have everything mic'd up for a real recording session, and the other guys are able to listen with almost no latency. It's amazing how, how little latency there is. So they can hear in high fidelity what I'm playing or what the other guys are doing. And then we can discuss, you know, we have our little iPhones with Zoom and we're discussing as the session's going on. So if we wanna hear something a little different, you know, uh, Don Gilmore, our producer would say that take was great. Let's try it Let's, as if we were in the same room together. So it, it really is amazing and, and that's how we did it. And then we'd pass around the sessions and the tracks to each other. You know, once the drums were done, we'd do the drum, bounce the drums, bass would go on and the guitars and so on and so forth. And just, we're all able to give our input the entire time. And it, it turned out to be a super creative process because when you're in a recording studio, you know, there's a finite amount of time. Everyone's trying to get through things as quickly as they can and they're watching the clock. And, um, you know, for this, if we felt that we wanted to take two days for a, you know, a guitar part or a drum part, we could do that. We had the freedom to do it. So uh, I think the, the end result um, was something that, you know, we were all really happy with. Yeah. And by, by staying in longer and taking more time with it, you were actually being good citizens, you know, because that's what we're supposed to be doing anyway, exactly. is not going anywhere. So it's like, well, let's yeah. take more time uh, with the album. And uh, you know, that uh, absolutely makes sense. And, you know, when you think about in terms of the, the fact that there's not really the delay that you would expect, like the way we're doing it right now, you know, there mm -hmm. could be if, if, if you guys all started playing music, but if, if everybody was plugged in the right way, I mean, anybody listens to a, a radio show of any kind over the last year, all the people on it aren't in the same room. And, yeah. you know, if you were to just turn on that show for the first time in a year, you wouldn't think, oh, it sounds so different than it used to because of, you know, where we're at with technology. So it makes sense no reason musicians can't do this. And and like you were saying, it makes it easier for you guys to be in different parts of the country instead of, you know, like, well, you know, maybe in two years we'll all uh, be in the same place and, and we can do something. Uh, so uh, John, at what point uh, in the process were you sure like, okay, we definitely want to do this. And, and by the way, does fastest land animal, does it, is it, it does it come from uh, Napoleon dynamite? It was the first thing I thought of. I think ah. it, it's a line that he has somewhere in there and it's just him making small talk with the with a girl i think he says that the cheat is the fastest land animal i, I just it, it might not have been that at all but uh I, it was the one thing i thought of when i when i heard the name no it didn't i i that's a great movie i don't remember that specific reference but it sounds funny uh, <laughs> i think this goes back to uh god years and years ago uh back in my uh college days there was uh some some uh, particular female uh, had a bit too much to drink and went home with a particular male that she probably wouldn't have normally gone home with. And then Fair she enough. woke up the next morning and got out of there so quickly. She didn't even want to have any, any recollection of having been there. And we said, wow, she's like a cheetah. She's like the fastest land animal. She got out of there so fast. Um, oh, it, it's weird, John. I didn't realize we went to college together, uh, but uh, yeah, it, uh, ah, it, it, yeah was a good night, it was a good night for me, not so much for her. But you didn't uh, want me to mention your name, but um. <laughs> they usually don't. <laughs> but uh, uh, yeah, so that yeah. so that that it's a it's a fun name and it's it's catchy. And uh, so I, I and 
I, I don't want to make it seem like I'm belaboring the same point, but was there a point in the process where you had the material and you're like, no, this is definitely going to be fastest line animal. It's not going to, it's not going to be, you know, any other name that we might've used before. No, it was definitely the name came first and that was going to be the name. And then when we started this process, I had enough material, uh, you know, pre-written uh, all in demo form so that we could do at least an EP, you know, four or five songs and just, release it and that would be that and then as the creative process goes on you're you get triggered to be more and more creative and I kept writing and we all kept collaborating and, and more songs came up to the point where we had nine songs and it was a half hour and then we could actually legitimately release an LP albeit a short one but short is cool as the Ramones have proven with their first release yeah. which is about a half hour long yeah, um, no, the 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 running time of yours would be a Ramones double album, I think, because a lot of your songs are three or four minutes, and that's easily two Ramones songs, sometimes three, you know, if you're going to factor right. in the KKK took my baby away, which is like a minute and a half, you know. Or or, or like a Wire song, which is 29 seconds. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, well, I want to talk about uh, the uh, actual songs on there, and then the as I mentioned earlier, uh, Too Close to the Fire and Answer in My Head are the two singles that are out. Those are videos that people can find. That's the easiest way to find things, but uh, the album's available however people consume uh, albums now. Uh, I wanted to talk about a couple of my favorites on there and a few of the different sounds on there. Uh, I liked, uh, it, it stand out for me were uh, Bubble Candy and I'll Do the Crime, and they both had sort of where the vocals were and kind of the instrumentation. It was it was reminiscent for me in, in the best way because it's it's my favorite Beck album. He has an album called Midnight Vultures from the early 2000s. I think it's 2000. And it it had a lot of those, those like the highest highs that he usually does, which I mean, he hasn't probably done since. And so, uh, you know, and I love that album. So I'm like, I love these songs. And I, I you know, it does, it's not like, oh, it sounded just like it. It just had that feel to it. Um, what uh, what are your, you can tell, any of you can jump in on on those two songs in particular. We'll, we'll talk about some others, but uh, let's, uh, just talk a little bit about Bubble Candy first. Yeah, well, Bubble Candy is a song I co-wrote with my friend Bob Schneider, aka Bip Frisco. Was his uh, was his? You did you, know, you did right. mention him in the the earlier interview. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Bob is um, he's a singer songwriter musician out of Austin, Texas. He's been around uh, a while and he's got a great following. He's super talented, super prolific, and he's a good buddy. And um, back when we were allowed to travel uh my wife and i would spend quite a uh quite a bit of time in austin where he lives uh and i spent a lot of time recording and writing with him in his studio his home studio as he has uh spent time in my home studio and um i mentioned to him the day we wrote bubble candy we were in his studio in austin together and i said you know, I have this project called Fastest Land Animal. The rule is every song has to be at least 150 beats per minute, uh, which is the tempo of the song. And it, that's, it's pretty fast for a song. And he said, that's easy. And then we sat down and an hour later, we had written Bubble Candy. And uh, so I was like, good, this is totally going to be on the album. And it is. And he's featured singing uh, vocals on it as well. Yeah, and uh, I I think that uh, you know another song uh, buried alive had a feel for me. Uh, you know, again, 
doesn't sound exactly like them, but uh, a band that plays very fast, which not everybody knows, but a band out of San Diego called Rocket from the Crypt. They had a couple of songs in the late 90s that uh, people knew. And, uh, you know, I mean, if you watched MTV when they still showed videos, that sort of a thing. But uh, uh, talk a little bit about Buried Alive. I think uh, lyrically, I, I, I was uh, I was caught up into it, but I liked just sort of, you know, now that you're saying the 150 beats per minute, I'm like, yes, that's exactly what it is. The songs that moved like that are probably the ones that uh, I I liked all of them, but uh, those are the ones that I think stood out for me. Thanks. Yeah, that one I actually wrote in New York City, sitting at my dining room table, and this was pre pre pandemic, and um, it was just one of those like there was construction going on everywhere in the city. Uh, I was dealing with um, uh, construction that was happening in the building next door. And there was horns blaring, there was traffic, there was all this activity going on. Uh, the window was open and all I heard was just blaring New York City noise. Um, and I just felt like uh, anger and uh, I feel buried alive, there's so much going on. And that's where the song came out. And this is coming from a, a guy who's lived in New York City most of his life. So I'm used uh, to that, but it was just one of those New York days where you're like, yeah, there's there's those days where, you know, even for New York, like, all right, even for here, this is a bit much. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I grew up in the uh, the rural suburbs outside of New York City in, in Orange County, New York, a little town called Greenwood Lake. And my my, I, my first girlfriend lived in Manhattan and she was on a first floor apartment. So the uh, first uh, the first day that I ever stayed over, obviously I'm out on the couch because uh, she had uh, you know nice Jewish parents that were like, no, you're gonna be out there, and uh, I, just the whole time I'm like this with the big eyes, and, and it you know it's just the the constant noise. I'm like, yeah, I, I don't have that, you know. It's like the crickets can lull me to sleep where I grew up, and uh, it takes some getting used to. And uh, even when you get used to it, though, it uh, you know it can really follow you around a little bit, you know. Yeah, I'm pretty used to. It. I, one of the apartments I had years and years ago um, was a second floor apartment directly above a, an all night parking garage <laughs> with a garage door directly underneath my bed. Oh. So literally every, you know, 15 minutes or however long a car would come in and out of the garage, you hear rumble, 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 rumble as the guitar, uh, the garage door opened and then rumble, 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 rumble as it closed. So I went without sleep for a good like 10 and a half months oh, i was i was really having a meltdown i you know there's no one you can call i called that 311 number they didn't do anything i literally would sneak out of my apartment well not sneak out but i i would go out of my apartment at 2 30 in the morning and just like look at this garage door and see if there was like some sort of wire i could clip so that it was broken and i couldn't open it anymore because i couldn't freaking sleep but yeah. you know that didn't happen and uh eventually i moved well, and it's yeah. amazing, you know, when we're out on the road in hotels and it's quiet. I mean, I, I can't sleep in quiet like that. It's the, the TV's <laughs> got to be on. There's got to be some sort of sound coming from my phone because it's just too quiet. You and know? the other thing being, being uh, playing, having played as we have in rock bands our whole lives, there's something called tinnitus, which is, sure. you know, ear, basically it's ear damage and it's, it's really serious, but if it's too quiet in the room, all I hear is yeah, because uh, I've been exposed to too much loud music. Uh, since then, I've made adjustments and I wear in-ear ear protection and monitors and that sort of thing. But 
it's, yeah, I mean, just to just to interject, it's uh, you know, I'm I'm 45, and uh, there was a point where the idea of wearing earplugs to concerts, I'm like, yeah, but uh, what what kind of what kind of loser am I that I'm doing it? But I actually have it a little bit. It's very little. I'm I'm lucky in that I I started like taking it seriously before, uh, it got really bad. But yeah, it's when it's absolutely quiet that's when I hear it, you know? Right. So. so this is why we leave TVs on at night or we have those, <laughs> yeah. those machines that play the wavy wave noises or yeah. whatever. Well, you, you also reminded me about, uh, you know, uh, since it's, it's a very sort of New York City reference, but, uh, you know, seeing a, a movie at the Angelica Film Center, if it was a good movie, you didn't oh, yeah. realize that the subway came by like every four minutes. I, I but knew if you were going to say that. If it wasn't a good movie, I, you're like, oh, the subway was really loud today. <laughs> The yeah. Angelica, you know, they were they were the independent, you know, the hipster yeah. independent theater. Uh, yeah, I saw I saw train spotting there, and that was one where I actually didn't notice the subway. You know, oh, probably Blair Witch Project uh, there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but like literally, the subway, the six line rant runs. I don't. I think the Angelica is still around. Runs directly underneath the theater. So if it's yeah. a quiet part of a movie, uh, you know, a lot of the movies they play there are very serious, quiet pensive foreign films and this kind of thing you hear just like rumble 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 well uh johnny with there uh, being a you know sort of a, a new approach towards uh the the material on this album uh was there something you were excited about it you know that you got to do on this whether it's a specific song or just uh you know playing in a different style was there something that stands out you know when you either listen to or just think back on the album as a whole what's the the standout for you that uh, that you were able to do that you'd been itching to do for a while yeah uh don and john kind of wanted this like extended solo at the end of bubble candy and we're gonna do like an old school fade out like you know like a like an old record you know like just fades out like everyone just like you know kind of bashing it out and i was like oh cool we're gonna have a, a fade out i was like i haven't heard a fade out in forever and i was like cool let's do that Record gets mixed, mastered, no fade out. <laughs> so. Well, what you played was so cool, we had to keep it. And by the way, that was, uh, so the album was mixed by, <coughs> excuse me, Chris Lord Algae, who was one of the, you know, most famous preeminent uh, uh, album mixers out there. Like if you look in your record collection, probably at least half of what you own is mixed by CLA and we told him to fade it out and he just sent it back and without the fade out. And I don't know if it was a mistake or deliberate, but we're like, you know, I called Don and Don called me. I'm like, I know we were supposed to fade this out, but kind of sounds cool the way it is. Right. And he's like, yeah, let's just keep it. And then we kept it. So that's oh. CLA's fault, Johnny, not ours. Yeah. Ne next album, uh, Johnny's going to do only fade outs. Every song's going to fade out. The interesting thing about fade outs, it's like off the top of my head, I I'm not sure, but I, I it's almost like, I think while my guitar gently weeps has a fade out. Like there's songs with fade outs where you're like, what are you doing? Like, well, then you have the, uh, have the same album on the white album, Helter Skelter yeah. has the fade out and then the fake fade out and it fades back in. That's awesome. That I like. I, I, I think, you know what? That should come back. I, I think that uh, every album should have that. Uh, interesting that, uh, you know, referencing the, the Beatles because 
the song on the album, uh, Never Gonna Leave, there's a, uh, there's a, to me, I like made this note while I was uh, walking around listening to it because it, there were two parts that had very distinctive feels. And I'm like, oh, it shouldn't work. There's like sort of a, there's a, there's a part that had a, a Beatles sort of uh, harmony, but then uh, some of the distortion, I'm like, well, this kind of feels like Al Jorgensen in the ministry. And I'm like, I, I don't know how the same song has that put together because it shouldn't work. But it does. Uh, anybody who wants to talk about that song, uh, jump in on uh, Never Gonna Leave. Yeah, I wanted to do a, a song. I was thinking of um, on the album, the Foo Fighters album, Wasting Light, there's a song called White Limo. And I actually think it won a Grammy. And that's a real trashy, gnarly, real distorted vocal sounding song. So I wanted to do a song kind of like that. So that, that was uh what i had in mind when we recorded that and we specifically recorded and mixed the drums so they sounded real trashy and nasty recorded the vocals so that they were like really crunchy and distorted and then when it came to the bridge part of the song i just had this idea let's do something a little diametrically opposed to the rest of it it still will have that you know trashy sound to it but maybe something a little slower a little prettier uh just to kind of put a little like a little intermission in the middle of the song, a little pause before you go back to the, the nasty part. Um, Andrew, what about uh, your sort of similar question to what I was asking Johnny before? Is there, uh, whether a song or part of a song that really stands out for you, something that's like, oh, it was really fun to get to do this because maybe it was different than uh, what you'd had the opportunity to do uh, recently? Yeah, um, probably again with Bubble Candy because that was kind of like the, uh, you know, jam song where we're doing something we're all doing something a little different we get to have a little fun with it um and again the the outro you know we're musicians we have fun playing and um it, it was just different enough and it was inspiring too because you know the harmonica in there and having bob do his thing in there it was just a, a cool different vibe so i think that one was fun um i also really like you know uh I'm traditionally more of like a, not slower, but more of like a groove oriented, you know, drummer. And some of these punky upbeat songs were fun too, just like, you know, never, never gonna leave, um, you know, kind of channeling the inner Josh Fries to do kind of what he does with the Vandals. And it's just, you know, just driving forward. And, and so, I mean, all of it was fun. And again, I don't know that we would have been able to to do it how we did it if we were in a studio together just methodically trying to knock out songs to make a record so right. being able to go back and forth even if we change the drum part completely like we we could decide on something and then the next day i could say hey guys i had an idea listen to this that that was just so um uh it it i think it's a better scenario it, it, we we were able to to really try different things um and 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 get our final thoughts and ideas down how we really really wanted them yeah absolutely all right so uh the album's out now and uh obviously uh you know touring is uh very difficult uh obviously you get people that can do some one-off shows here and there you know i talked to uh david Ellison from megadeth and he had uh, done some uh shows in in texas back in november and he actually told me that uh, he's like, you know what? I probably wouldn't do it again, you know, just because it's like after the fact, you're like, oh, wait, was that was that really safe? You know, uh, but mega death. I don't yeah. know. 
Well, it, it was a solo album. And I think, I think that's the problem. You know, yeah. it's like for the, for the big band, it's like, yeah, well, obviously, you know, you went to a Megadeth concert, you know, there's a chance you're going to probably, you know, catch an infectious disease of some sort. But, uh, you know, and I've talked yeah, to other artists. Snoring during pandemic, Megadeth, Anthrax, <laughs> who else? Yeah, <laughs> that's a, that's a great point. Uh, but in terms of, uh, you know, but uh, so, you know, look, you can, obviously there are uh, online performances. There's uh, good old fashioned TV performances. Uh, is there any, and you know, any plans to play together at some point in the near future? Or is it all like, well, let's see, you know, where the world's at in the fall or, or what, what are you guys thinking, you know, next step after now that the album is out? I mean, obviously we're waiting to hear what, what we are allowed to and could do safely before we make any of those sorts of plans. Um, there's really nowhere to play anyway um, that I'm aware of. Uh, so what we're focusing on immediately is, is just uh, writing and recording more songs for a, another Fastest Land Animal album. And then uh, assuming we can get that done um, and then the, re the world returns back to normal, then we'll have you know, even that much more material to actually perform live, which is what we really wanna do and really miss doing. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, getting more material, I think that'll be great. And, uh, you know, because now, uh, you know, do you want to have a nine song set list, you know, when you have two albums to mix it up and uh, maybe a couple of the Ramon songs we threw around in here, maybe something that you guys could, uh, you know, throw in, in the encore or whatever. But no, look, it makes sense. I mean, you definitely, you know, you look, uh, and I, I know I try to be optimistic. You hear things that are encouraging. You don't hear things where it's like, oh, great, everything's normal. But you're like, okay, it's heading in a direction where we hope it continues to do that because uh, I, you know, obviously... Uh, I want to be able to just go to concerts and I'm sure you guys would love to play this stuff live uh, somewhere and uh, you know, doing more of the album, uh, doing another album would be, uh, would be great. So in terms of uh, where everybody can find everything uh, it's fastestlandanimal.band, right? And I think John Correct. said, uh, Andrew, that's on you for knowing that dot band was a thing, <laughs> right? It's, it's a thing. And um, you know, uh, our social media marketing guy is a great musician too. And, we, you know, we had discussed how do we, how do, you know, fastest land animal is such a common term. Yeah. So it's not easy to get everything you want to line up. So it, that turned out to be it. And, and we keep joking around that dot band. Why doesn't everyone have that? We, yeah. we just go around and we're going to buy all the dot bands now and then everyone can get them back from us. And that'll be our, our yeah, uh, you guys, you guys retirement plan. Yeah. That's what yeah. we were talking about when we did the earlier interview, you guys yeah. won't even uh, need to tour. You'd just be like, yeah. uh, we're just the dot band. band. Yeah. yeah. Metallica dot band, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you negative yeah. dot band. You got to come, come through us. Yeah, look, right. uh, if you get Megadeth.band, I will definitely uh, make sure that uh, that Dave Elfson knows about it. But uh, I don't know if he's going <laughs> to if he's going to be the one to cut the checks and he'll probably have to get Dave Mustaine on the call because, uh, you know, he's, he doesn't get to write. Hey, the, his the money's corp. as green as anyone's. Yeah, but he doesn't get to he doesn't get to use the the company checks that have the Megadeth logo on it. You know, like a, the, the <laughs> nice pus head checkbook, you know, with I wouldn't even cash that check. That's too cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they're counting on. Like, look right. at this yeah. check. Yeah, I, just a, as a complete aside, uh, when I was a when I was in college, I, I interned at Saturday Night Live, and I wrote a joke that got on the air, and uh, I got it for a hundred dollars. I got a check, and people were like, "Oh my god, are you gonna frame that check?" I'm like, "No, I'm gonna cash it. I'll make a I made a photocopy, I made a Xerox of it, and I and I put that up." But I'm like, "No, I'm not gonna frame the check. Are you kidding? That's a hundred dollars." All right, so now you gotta tell us what was the joke. 
Ah, well, the joke has a word that we don't use anymore, and it's uh, not racial. It's just, uh, it's insensitive. Uh, so it loses a little bit of the punch. Uh, but uh, I will uh, I will construct it uh, f- from memory. I'm not going to read it. This is literally 21 years ago. <laughs> it was like, it was in early 2020. Uh, sorry, early t- 2000. Uh, so it was uh, at the U.S. Comedy Arts Festival, uh, Jerry Lewis said that he couldn't name any funny female comedians because he thought of them only as baby making machines. He then proceeded to spend the next hour telling the crowd about his own comic genius in falling down and making fun of differently abled people. So the punchline had the R word in it and we don't say that anymore. But in in 2000, you said that on TV, it got a laugh. So by changing it to be a, a more appropriate joke, I don't know if it's funny anymore, <laughs> but it got me a hundred dollars. Yeah, nice. And no. you cashed the check, but at least you Johnny didn't it. like it. Johnny yeah, just flat just, out did not. Johnny he just did not like my joke. He left. Yeah. He's gone. Either that yeah. or he's a huge Jerry Lewis fan, which I don't blame him. You know, because both. like the <laughs> both. <laughs> Because like that's the real <laughs> nutty professor. Let's be honest. Is the Jerry right. Lewis one? Yeah. Well, guys, uh, it was fun to get to chat with you again. Uh, both of them were fun, uh, but uh, it's nice to actually get to see and have the conversation and get to you know talk about making the album. Uh, and uh, I look forward to uh, hearing more from you guys. And you know, whenever it is that uh, there are live shows, uh, I would uh, uh, I will uh, see if I can uh, get onto. Uh, Shark Samuel's comp list. Uh, I won't ask any of you guys, but I will directly write to Shark and see if maybe he got he has an allotment uh, of tickets. That I know uh, a guy. Yeah, yeah. we'll get you backstage. Just stay away from the catering. (laughs) That's fair. You know what? I probably should. Especially if it's pot roast. uh, It's going to be a big fight over that. Uh, I didn't. I didn't know it was. I didn't know it was. I didn't know you guys were having Boston Market cater the the back room. Come on. Johnny's a big fan of pot roast and. uh, Whenever there's pot roast on the menu, that is a good night for Johnny. Look, I don't know where else we could leave it other than that. Thanks so much uh, to the guys, uh, John, Andrew, and Johnny. Fastest Land Animal, fastestlandanimal.band. Give it a listen. Thanks again, guys. Thank you, man. Thank you. Joining me now is Don Miggs of the band Whole Damn Mess. They have a new song called Nothing in the World Feels Better. Welcome to the show, Don. Thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. 
I appreciate you having me. So thank you. Uh, I usually like to start off by asking an artist about their background. You know, uh, who were some of the earliest influences you can kind of remember? And if there's a moment where you're like, hey, this, uh, you know, this music thing seems like something I might be actually pretty good at and uh, want to try and pursue. I can't wait for that moment. Um, <laughs> are, you, are you okay with me being long-winded? Because one thing, brevity has never been my best friend. Yeah. Um, uh, no, no. Uh, and yeah, uh, I've, I've done episodes of this show that are two hours and 56 minutes and don't worry, you're not in for one of those, but no brevity is uh, not my friend. So please. Um, so like I've been playing music sincerely ever since I can remember my, um, literally in a crib, I used to rock on the sides of the crib so much that I, I would break the cribs. My mom tells stories of several cribs being in my house. And then, we didn't grow up with a lot and we had this couch and I would sit on the end of the couch and rock on the end of the couch. And I broke the couch, which was not something that everybody was very stoked about. <clears throat> um, but like, I've always had it in my head. Like I was writing songs like Eagle's Eye and you spin me, you dazzle me, you take me for a ride with a friend when we were in second grade. I mean, it was, it literally was the thing that always propelled me. I either wanted to hit a baseball or hold a guitar. And I remember my uncle and my father, my father and my uncles, there are four of them, and my dad, they all played music. And the brothers were really good. And there was times when I would look at my uncle singing and like, I'd be like, is that the radio? Because his voice was so good. I mean, a little bit of a history of him is, they played the World's Fair in like 64 or something. And the colonel who was managing Elvis Presley saw my uncle and called my grandfather and said, uh, I'd like to manage him. My grandfather was like, no, he's too young. He's going to school. Um, and <laughs> Well, the, 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 the colonel probably would have kept most of his money. So, you know, that was right. probably. <laughs> and my uncle could be could have died on a toilet. Um, <laughs> That's true. And he's, uh, it's funny, full circle, he and I are doing a Christmas record together. He's 74, 73, and he has this wonderful Neil Diamond-like voice, and we're making a Christmas record. But I grew up with them all playing, so I, my dad was all the late 50s, my uncle was the mid, early 60s, the next brother was the late 60s, the next brother was all the, like, Stevie Wonder, and then my other uncle from the other side was all the 80s and I come in like 90s. And so I, I was I'm steeped in the music and I had to if you wanted to play, hang out with my dad, and my uncles, you had to have an instrument or sing a harmony. And if you grabbed one of their notes, everybody stopped and looked at you like, that's not the <laughs> harmony. You're singing my yeah. note. Get on your own. I started playing drums on boxes just so I could be in the room with them and soaking up these songs that I thought they wrote. I thought all of them. I thought they wrote, one uncle wrote Crimson and Clover. Um, I think we're alone now. I was certain my other uncle wrote Sympathy for the Devil. Like <laughs> I just didn't have any context. But then I started getting grounded a bunch and I would listen to music and just sit in my room listening to music. And one time I was grounded and the only thing that was in the room was an old guitar of my dad's and I didn't play it yet. And this is when I'm 10 
years old. And I said, maybe I was eight years old. I forget because I wrote my first song at eight. But um, and I and I said, can I play the guitar? Because they wouldn't even let me listen to music. And they were both like, sure, you don't play the guitar. Have at it, son. And it was an old harmony, like you could barely get your hand on, you know. So I freaking was grounded and fell in love with the guitar. So I can really thank my mom for that because she would be the one grounding me. And I yeah, you it. you can also thank yourself for whatever you did to get yourself in trouble. You know, yeah, they, that's a good you point. were stuck in the room with a guitar. You know, <laughs> that's a good point. So I started. I played "Love Me Tender" was the first thing I learned from a Mel Bay guitar book, and I was just trapped in this thing. Like literally, at first, that's what it felt like because I didn't feel like it went beyond joy. It was like this burning. You don't have a choice, and I was in fifth grade, and we were just starting to play instruments. And I remember saying to two other friends who didn't really play, we're going to play the talent show at the end of the year. And we're going to play The Chain by Fleetwood Mac. Wow, okay. Fast forward, by the way, on the record you have one song of, Mick Fleetwood is a friend of mine. He's playing drums on another song on this record. Um, and he lives in, lives, stays in my house in L.A. when I'm in L.A., which is surreal because literally yeah. – First time playing live for real, for real was, so we were gonna do the chain. Turns out we couldn't because we didn't play. So it gets, <laughs> close to, gets close to the talent show and my decision is we're gonna sing along to uh, Dreams instead. So I made a band, DSM, Don, Steve, Max. They were our three names. We sang that talent show. And I honestly have never stopped. And then I was like 19, running, doing business in New York. Felt like I was achieving something. Gavin McKillop, who produced Toad the Wet Sprocket, Bare Naked Ladies, Goo Goo Dolls, Sugar Cult, like a whole mess of groups at this one period of time. He heard a song of mine and wanted to produce a record. I was older than 19, by the way. I had signed a deal at 19 with BMG, got fired from my own band. If you want to hear that story, we can go into it, but to, I won't fast forward to when I really realized. So now I'm doing music on the weekends, doing all this. I'm moved to California. I had already had a record deal and lost a record deal and all different things had happened. And Gavin McKillop, I think actually, whatever it's five years later than that six years later than that i was in a band called migs and we made we we're writing some stuff and one song he heard he said he called me while i was in new york around thanksgiving he said uh he's from scotland he smoked a lot don migs um i would love to make a record with you and i was like i'm a big fan of what you do this is exciting yeah, i'd love to and I said, I can do work on Fridays. I can. I had a great job. I just bought a house in San Francisco. I could do fly down on Fridays or drive down on Fridays to LA, work Friday through Monday. And I think my job would be cool if I came back on Tuesdays just for a couple of weeks till we finished the record. And he said, you don't make fucking records on the weekends. 
<laughs> he said, and he said the thing that changed my life. All before then, music was all I did. One rib goes in more than the other because I used to practice guitar 12 hours a day. I wanted to be Randy Rhodes. Um, and then, but I always wrote and sang songs. And so it just made sense that I sang. There's something ringing and picked it up. So he said, do you want to be a musician or someone who plays music? And it was like somebody drew a line in the sand. And I went back and quit my job. Now, I was making, I, that year, I think I'd made almost a half a million dollars, which was a century ago. And unbelievable that I would make that much money. Never in my life did I think I would ever. Yeah, sure. Right? I went in and I said, um, I got to quit. And I was with someone at the time and I said to her, if I don't quit and do this, I think I'll kill myself before I'm 40. And I just did it. And I don't, didn't have really a plan B. I was going to consult a little, but I didn't really have a plan B. I just went all in on my plan A. And I don't suggest that that's the way to do it. But I figured this out as the years have progressed. I was much happier failing at plan A than succeeding at plan B. Yeah, no, I mean, that makes perfect sense because honestly, that's uh, the sort of thing that, uh, you know, for whenever I've had the opportunity to give any kind of, you know, broadcasting, you know, comedy, career advice, anytime anybody listens, I've always felt that if you have a fallback plan, you're going to fall back on it at some point, you know? And I, and I think that, uh, you know, there's different situations that people come into and it's, especially if you have to relocate, you know, it's like, yeah. well, you got to give yourself a few years, don't give yourself one year and you just have to figure out how to do it. But yeah, because if, if you have, the, if you had kept the day job, I think that, uh, you know, who knows what kind of product you would have put out just by, you know, running yourself ragged, going back and forth, just trying to squeeze in the album when, in all honesty, like the, the job would be the secondary thing. So, I mean, I think that makes but, perfect yeah. sense. But you also get to a point where it's like, what is, what's your plan? And if you're going to fail, fail forward, right? I know that sounds like some weird cliche, but that's, I just feel like that's been my whole plan is like, I don't know if I'm going to get it right. But I, I certainly not even going to get it wrong if I don't do it. And I realized I didn't care about the money and all this stuff. And that my biggest advice to people always, you know, now I do so much producing and writing with people. And I always say, don't buy stuff because everybody wants things and we're programmed to want things. But that's the trap. The minute you buy a thing that you now or don't get a dog that you can't go on tour because of. Don't get a job, don't get a car that you need the stupid job to pay for, and then you can't go do the thing you wanna do because getting all the things you think you want stop you from getting the thing you need. It literally puts you in this trap and there's no reason for it except that here in America, especially we're programmed like, 
get the house, the car, the boat, like you keep getting stuff and then you accumulate things that wind up not mattering. And that's why record labels sort of were, we were forced to go younger and younger and younger on who they sign. So while they sign young people because they think that's what young people will listen to, we have proven again and again, kids don't really care where they get their music as long as it's good. They're, they'll listen to Put Your Head on My Shoulders on TikTok all day long, and it's Paul Anka singing it. He's yeah. 79 years old, and they're cool with it because they love the song. But you're not going to sign Paul Anka because he has too much baggage with him. You can't sign someone who you can't boss around. So the labels wind up saying, yeah, we're going to sign the 19-year-old who has nothing because they're going to do anything we need them to do as opposed to sign the guy who doesn't really need us. And then when we say he has to go on tour for 18 months, he says, screw you. I'll do it for eight. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's to, to your point, it's sort of like living within your means. I mean, there's this, I can't remember if it was a 30 for 30, but it was a, there was this ESPN documentary about how so many athletes go broke and uh, Herm Edwards, the coach is yep. talking to them and he's like, buy one car. You don't, right. you can only drive one car at a time. You don't need more than one. Maybe sign another contract. Then you can do that. And you know, you, you learn so many things from, you know, like the, the MC hammer behind the music, the amount of money that he had coming in, but it was going right back out because he surrounded himself with people who had their hands out. And it's just like, yeah, live, live within your means, but you know, try and push yourself to make it, you know? And then if you're not beholden to those things, then you're giving yourself a real shake. And it's funny, the thing you're talking about, like the dog and, and all of that, uh, my wife and I, we now have a five-year-old and a three-year-old, but we never had pets because it's like, you know, sometimes we might, might want to like, you know, go to Europe or something, you know, and we didn't want to have to be like, oh, well, we can get together for two hours, but then we got to get back for, for the right. dog. We have kids, it's a choice, you know, but then it's like, you know, you don't want that sort of obligation and to be able to focus on the career, I think is important. So uh, as you sort of take that step, what uh, was there... How long was it before you started to feel like, yeah, you know what? I, I'm glad I did this. And were there those moments of like, I can't believe I said no to half a million dollars a year, you know, at the, the job that I walked away from? Yeah, there were all the all that, you know, that's a beautiful thing about this industry is what I tell people is the key is to stay in the garden. But some days you're picking flowers and other days you're pulling weeds. So our job is to just stay in the garden. You're going to, there's hit songs and there's no songs. And, they, you know, so you just keep doing this thing. And every day, you know, I'm really good at uh, rejection. I rose to the middle. I was great at rising to the middle. I could not get beyond that for years and years and years. And it's taken me way too long to figure out some of the secrets. But you definitely, every day, I, I, I still, well, now it's just, honestly, I'm the happiest guy. I'm like Cinderella every day. That's the truth. I, I, I can't wait to get up and I go to bed dead ass tired from a long day of work. And it's, I have two, two boys, I have a beautiful wife, and I have a beautiful life. My studio is on the property. If I'm touring, 
we, my family, we make it work because they know how much that that feeds who I am. Um, and I make sure I spend all my other time with them. And I feel like a unicorn because I just have boundless energy to get to do all of it. But yeah, when you, when you put a song out, like even this, nothing in the world feels better. I love this song so much. And then I go to Spotify and we're at 120,000 streams. And it's like, that's good, but why doesn't it have a million? So like every day it's like, I should have just kept my job somewhere else where I don't have to think about being a failure 24 seven, because when you measure up against all of your friends and they have hit songs and yours isn't, you wonder, is it because my hair isn't their color? Is it like, what am I doing wrong? Do I just not write a good enough song? So, you know, your ego is getting the crap kicked out of it by your self-doubt. And there's this endless fight of like questions. And the only thing that makes that better uh, probably is age as you get older and just go, listen, you just keep riding the tide and it does this. And I've just been on a really good swing, but like I'm always ready for the wave to come over my head also. I don't know if that answered your question. No, no, it absolutely does. I mean, I think just uh, being able to, you know, sure, you can have those freak out moments. You can have the moments of like, oh, I wish this or that were better, but also being prepared for like, could could be a lot worse. You know, it could it could be, you know, 120 streams on Spotify instead of, a, you know, 120,000 or whatever. You right. Know? And so, you know what? I always feel great. I just made a record with freaking Billy Corgan, Smashing Pumpkins. We just did a movie together. Like, so when I'm feeling at all trepidation, the good news is I have enough stuff to brag to myself to get me back to normal. Yeah. And I mean, I think that that's really what you need, you know, I mean, depending on what it is that somebody does, you know, it's always like, yeah, but I, you know, I, I have done this, whatever's in that moment. So uh, let's talk about how, a uh, whole damn mess comes together. But I did like you were talking about how you had a band named Migs at one point and you had previously been fired from a band. So I figure if you put your name in the band, it makes it a lot harder to get fired from the band. Dude, that's what I said. That was my, and it's funny. I didn't name that band. Some, uh, someone else was like, let's call it Migs. Um, but I thought to myself, it's going to be awful hard for them to fire me now. <laughs> but the pressure was I kept that band together longer than I should have Oh, okay. out of loyalty and because people that like tattooed lyrics or the name on themselves or that people that love that band, I felt an obligation not to bail on them because it wasn't working for me because music in the end is about the listener. And I thought, man, if that were my favorite band and they just stopped midstream, like, I would be bitter. And so I kept it going longer than I probably should have. So, uh, and this is, uh, you guys have uh, been putting out music as whole damn mess for a, a few years now. Talk about how the band comes together. Uh, I know that uh, Lawrence Katz is uh, from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. 
and uh, C. Todd Nielsen, Greg Hansen, they've uh, done a lot of uh, music for film and television, which is funny because the thing that struck me about this song, uh, Nothing in the World Feels Better, I'm like, man, this needs to be in a movie or on a TV show or something. So it, I hadn't even read that in the notes and it just, it has a, and that's, you know, to me, that's a, that, that, that's a compliment because it's like, yeah, no, no it, it belongs put in a movie or a TV show. And then it was just sort of like a funny tidbit to realize that uh, that was the background to the guys had. Yeah. You know, that's what the four of us do. We do a ton of, we write and produce for a bunch of artists. We've done a lot of sync work. I would say that C. Todd and Lawrence have done the most sync work. C. Todd the most. Um, and he's always got, it's interesting, we all have our strengths. So the way it came together is Migs ended. I was sort of disillusioned. We had just come off of... Um, We'd made this record that Mark Needham mixed that I produced, Migs, this is, and I really liked the record. And Capital was not interested in putting the record out. They let us put it out overseas, so Germany. It didn't release here. And then we had this one single that we tried at radio and it started going up the charts. And Nikki Six became a fan and tweeted about it. And then Motley Crue asked us to go out on their final tour. And they needed this to go really quickly. And something happened where I was like, wait a minute. I've completely lost the plot. I don't want to go on tour with Motley Crue. No disrespect. My wife loves them. I grew up knowing their stuff. It was Motley Crue, Allison Cooper, and then us. Yeah, you know, no, I saw I saw that show at the Hollywood Bowl, and I'm like, wait, you weren't there? No, because the Struts took our spot. Yeah, that's right. The Struts were there. So we got asked to do the tour, and I was like, Nikki likes this one song that I had written for Fallout Boy that they wound up not using, and it doesn't really map onto what I'm trying to do. I've been gray since 21. And so I was coloring my hair and doing all this stuff. And I was like, I don't think I want to play this game anymore. And the label wasn't giving us any love, but the single started going up the charts. It was like number 48 or something. I'm like, I don't know. Number 18 in active rock. I'm like, I don't think this is for me. I turned down the tour. I told the band, I got bad news. Not only am I turning down Motley Crue tour, which they were all like, what? I think I'm done and I won't say quit. I think we'll call it a long hiatus. I love, cause I love those guys of their brothers. I just don't think I want to do this anymore. So I told the label, not screw you. I'm not coloring my hair anymore. I don't care what happens. Um, went home, tell between my legs. My manager was like, you need to be writing and producing people. You do that so well. I got a lot of people who write with you. So I'm like, okay. So I start digging into writing and producing. And I'm a little bit rudderless, not quite sure what's going to happen, but I'm getting it out because my problem with Migs is we were chameleons. Like we never took a stand. We were always on the fence. It was like, we're a little of this and a little of that. Oh, you like this? We'll play that. And so the problem is everyone likes you because you're good, but no one loves you. No one will die for you because they can sense you wouldn't die for it. And so like Motley Crue is a great example. They all like different music. 
but they make this Motley Crue music like it's life or death. They so whether they do other stuff or not, they put a feeling into it like it. They're on the they're not on the fence. They have chosen a side. Migs didn't do that. So now I'm getting to write with people. So it's like, oh, I want to write an R&B song. I got Boys to Men, a pop song, and write with Tom Higginson. Oh, I'm gonna do rock. I'm gonna do this guy, um, Candlebox. So I got all that stuff out, and then my manager sets me up with a write with C. Todd Nielsen and Lawrence Katz. They walk in, they're like, "What are we writing?" And I'm like, "I don't know." And I was again disillusioned. And we start talking, and they're like, "Let's write." I start this idea. And let's let's write that. We write. Maybe we should do it, which was. The first song we ever wrote, and it's a song we open every show with, and it's on the Queen and the Outcast record. And when I was in the middle of it, it was like I was back to being the kid watching my uncles and my dad play. Like I started thinking, did I write this? And over the next two weeks, we wrote 10 songs, all made the record, and it they reminded me how much I loved making music. But what they did really well is they put parameters on it. <clears throat> so C. Todd and Lawrence understood innately what I learned to say out loud, which is you can't be something to everyone. You got to be everything to someone. You can't be something to everyone. You got to be everything to someone. They understood what I was trying to articulate and they kept going, no, this is the music. And I would go, what? I like this. No, this is the music. But I want to sing about, no, we're singing about this. And they laser focused me on a thing. And we made that first record in the EP. And then we've doubled, then we, I met Greg Hansen, who grew up Bayshore, Long Island, the same place I grew up, 10 years apart. But we lived in the same spot and we had the same sensibilities and he was a natural fit. So the band is four producers and guitars and keyboards. And we always have people who are going to play drums. It's Mick Fleetwood. It's Dax Nielsen from Cheap Trick. It's all of our friends playing the ancillary parts, which is why it's called a whole damn mess. But it's four dudes who get to get their yayas out playing any kind of music they need to when they're writing for other people who only do one thing in whole damn mess. So we all get to be like, help each other chip off the edges and it feels like a well-oiled machine. So I don't care anymore if you like it or don't like it because at least I know I'm giving you a full bread thing. Does that make sense? No, it it absolutely does because uh, instead of, you know, sort of, catering to a trend you know and sort of what you were talking about with the the mig song you could have been like oh this feels different but that's what people want and let me now do that and i you know i don't want to disparage their success but a good example is the band sugar ray they had a very specific sound they do the song fly and it's like oh yeah we're gonna sound like that now and look they had a huge they had a tremendous success with it and that was a choice on their part and that's what they wanted to do but i think to have you know just decided you're a different thing that's not for everybody i think you know that's that i think is what you didn't want to do you know i mean i and again i'm not trying to disparage them but it's basically you're like well i don't want to i don't want to be sugar ray you know well you know what it's funny you're saying that because 
I'm working with an artist today, and they'll use that almost same example, but I use Smash Mouth. Sure, that's a great example too, yeah. Same and time you know period, what? Yeah. They've figured out to lean into the joke now instead of being the joke. They're like, we're in on it now. But, you know, that's no different. It could have gone very differently for the Rolling Stones with satisfaction. They could today be like, holy crap, this is terrible. Or my friend Tom Higginson wrote, hey there, Delilah, Plain White Tees. They've had other hits, but that one defined him. And I used to say to him, do you wish you didn't write it? Do you hate it? Because they, he was, they were like a punk band that did this song. And he said, I'm so happy I wrote it. I love that song. So he's leaned into it and doesn't let it define him. He gets to he gets to pick this incredible thing up and enjoy it as opposed to like, crap, I gotta play that one again. You know? So it just depends on where you come from. But my, but when we wrote, there's a song for this new record called Call the Dogs Off. We started figuring out what the sound was. And that's the one Mick Fleetwood's playing drums on. We're like, wait a minute, we think we got it. Now we have to write the brother to the song and the sister and the mom and dad, we do not get to write the cousin or the aunt until we have finished the whole family. So the songs all have this sense of, they all belong together. Because if I say to you, Motley Crue, you'll come up with a sound in your head. If I say to you, Rolling Stone, sound in your head, Bruce Springsteen, sound in your head. But if I now go play those records, I could play you a million examples of songs that don't fit in the thing you said in your you thought in your head of those bands, but you need a body of work that defines you. So people say, when I want to feel this, I go to them. And I think that's what makes iconic bands. Maybe I'm wrong, but that's what makes bands or artists that people will stay with as opposed to, again, no, a great artist, Carly Rae Jespin. Call Me Maybe. Big song. Huge, Huge song. Yeah. yeah. Same time, you have Lord. Lord had a huge record. Never had a song as big as Call Me Maybe. Whose career would you rather? Lord, for me, all day long. She yeah. could go anywhere and play for 1,200 people any night, anywhere. Carly Rae will live and die by that one song and have to go do Broadway or get on there. Go get another song that tracks it radio. She'll always be living up to that. So she went for a moment. I don't say saying she did, but that was a moment. Lord has a career. Because she did a body of work that felt like a thing. And people joined that cult. You don't know what cult you're joining with Carly Ray, and you didn't know what cult you were joining with Migs. With whole damn mess, you know. I'm gonna get music that is instantly sort of timeless classic it's new classic rock yeah and and that's sort of the feel that i had you know when i was listening to the song uh was that it, it you know it, it doesn't sound it has the spirit of an older song i don't mean it sounds outdated it has a feel of that but it, it, it it's a it's like a modern day take of it so it kind of makes you feel like oh yeah yeah this feels like a song that maybe i would have heard you know 25 years ago yeah. but you know it would have it's more like it would have been in the mix on like a, a on like a you know i'm using the air quotes but like an alternative rock station you know exactly. it fit in with that era but it doesn't have a dated sound you know it's just sort of that kind of feel for it and uh so the the song that we have so far 
is uh, Nothing in the World Feels Better. And uh, in terms of, you know, you've referenced a few other songs. It, it seems like this is one approach these days is to just, you know, do a few songs and work your way up to an album. Uh, and what is, what's sort of the game plan right now at this point? Because, I mean, this song's been around for just a little while, right? I mean, it's uh, been like a, a month or so? Two months, okay. Is it two oh, months? Yeah. Not even not even two months yet. But, okay. You know, here's the problem. We have their album ready to go. Sure. And if we put it out in two months, track number eight is as dated as track number one. And no one's even gotten to hear it yet. So what we're trying to do, we think, is we're going to do three singles while the world is waking back up because we can't tour it. Yeah. Right? All that stopped. While the world's waking up, we'll have some singles, get some content. We'll do some video work and all that, and just try to just try to get people to just have a pulse with what we're doing. And then at some point, the whole record will drop. But I mean, I am so excited for people to hear the whole record. They, it really, it's companion pieces. I think people are going to, I think it's going to be where people are going to either fall in love or they're going to hate us. And again, I'm so much happier with either of those than someone just going, it's okay. And by the way, yeah. we are the we are as good as any band live, any band. I am not saying, I feel like there is no one better than us. I'm not saying we're better than people, but there's no one, there's no one that'll make us feel stupid on that stage. No one. The greatest feeling in the world is being in a band where I might be the worst singer in it. And I'm the <laughs> singer. Like, yeah. I get to be, because there's four producers and four writers, that allows us to be fans of the band because we're not responsible. Like I didn't start Nothing in the World Feels Better. Greg did. So while I have lines that I wrote and parts that are mine, he started that song. So I get to be a fan of it because I'm not as, I didn't come up with it so no one can say, well, of course it's your song. Well, he started it. I'm just a fan of it, you know? Uh, yeah. In, in terms of uh, performing live, there was a quote I saw, I think from you, uh, that said uh, that the live shows are like a bar fight, except everyone is laughing and hugging at the end. So it's like a it's like a bar fight, but it's almost more like a bar fight in, in like a in like a Broadway musical where it's all sort of like everybody's into it. You know, and you know, it's, it's a I equated to it's being at my a family gathering. And during a holiday. <laughs> right. Because. <laughs> There's going to be three bottles of Classe Azul tequila will be had on stage. We, we pour it on stage, you know. There's six of us there. Everyone's running all over the place. Like, literally, there's a picture that I just posted again of me jumping off the drum riser where I am three feet above the bass player. And he's 5'10". Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm up in the air. And there's something about that that is like a big middle finger to people saying you got to be 15 to have any sort of spirit. Like, what's so cool about this band and about this moment in my life is that I really and truly want to be in the best band in the world. I'm not, there's nothing to phone in. I have nothing to prove, but everything to prove. 
And that's the way the band feels. It's like, we've all had success, but we have not done this thing that we all feel so protective of. It's the coolest feeling because I am sure that was what you two, when they did All You Can't Leave Behind and Beautiful Day came out after, after like doing all this stuff and people thought, do they still have it? They still want it to be the best band. Like, I want to write the best song I ever wrote today. Right. Right now. I don't care what's been written in the past. Today is the day I'm going to write the best song. I'm going to go to bed with a smile on my face because I wrote the best song I ever wrote today. Well, uh, <coughs> I guess you could say that uh, nothing in the world feels better. Thank you. Uh, very proud of that. But no, but uh, in terms of, uh, thank you. Yeah, in terms of the song itself, uh, there is a, this uh, cool video that goes with it that I wanted to talk to you about a little bit. Uh, and I don't know whether people hear it or they just see it if they're watching visually. What I like about the video is the uh, the gigantic like metal monster in it, and that he he dances. Just talk a little bit about the video and and like what went into this. You know, just sort of like it's it's not a video of the band. You know, in a in an airplane hangar singing. Uh, what was the thinking there? Well, it was exactly that. What we thought is that. <clears throat> Let's give people fun visuals because what you'll see is in this, there's the guy, you know, the metal monster dancing, and then it's going to go to another vignette. And all this is, is four or is it five different directors here we're doing for the entire thing. It's four different directors. Yeah. All putting this video together. Um, they all did it their own version of, 30 seconds of the song. And then we put those versions together to put it into a uh, context, which is kind of cool because it sort of makes you think yeah. that uh, concepts might not be as cool as, yeah. as they would think they are because it's several <laughs> concepts in this one thing. We thought that we wanted the video to represent what we do, it's a whole damn mess. It's several people's ideas melding into one. You know, not to get too philosophical, it just also felt like who needed to see people playing instruments when, the, if they really want to, there's tons of that footage. So we wanted to give them something that maybe they could just watch and be like, wow, that's fun to watch. Yeah. So uh, sort of what you were talking about before, obviously, you know, release schedules are impacted by the the huge question mark that is uh, touring schedules. And under normal circumstance, you'd probably be able to look at like, oh, well, maybe we can do some things there. Uh, it just depends on, uh, you know, what what each specific band is comfortable with. I mean, I've talked to bands who have played for, you know, a few thousand people at like an outdoor, like a, like a field in Colorado. I've talked to bands who've done like small, like mostly acoustic shows in Texas. You know, there's, there is a path, but is it, is it just that you and the guys in the band are like, all right, well, we want to do it right. And it's going to be a little while before that. And so because of that, you're not really sure on when an album would come out. I mean, <clears throat> Yes and no. We're ready to do something. The problem is stringing together more than one-offs. And right, one-offs, yeah. or even just a couple things, it gets expensive. We live in Atlanta, Florida, Vegas, L.A. Yeah. And then the 
bass player and the drummer that we usually use are either in Chicago or Nashville. So everyone has to come together to yeah. go do a thing. So we have a couple dates that we are doing some events. Like in June, there's one. In July, there's one. And those are great. Um, and we're talking with people about touring. Before this thing all happened, I mean, we were on this easy top cheap trick. We did a few dates with them. We did the Candlebox tour. And things looked like we had a couple possibilities for 2020 and the first part of 2021 that looked like big opportunities. They've sort of taken a dump, and we don't know if that's going to come back or not. And yeah. we just don't – we're ready to do it. And I would do it even in blocks of like go out for five days and then we're going to have to go home because there's nowhere else to go. Because everyone's, you know, not everyone, people are getting the shots. They were figuring a way to manage the distance. I mean, in Michigan, they're getting killed right now. COVID is all time high, but there are pockets where you can do some things. It's just, I want it to be safe for us and the people going. And we also can't just lose money. If you told me we're going to break even for sure, I'd even say we can do it. Well, yeah, because, you know, not losing money, then you can at least see the advantage of like, all right, we're getting in front of people, then they're going to know who we are. And then, you know, maybe the next time we come through this money. But yeah, I think that breaking even is is a, a dicey proposition right now. And yeah, it's, it you know, I it's sort of, it, it, the last few months, it, it's run the gamut from the answers that I get, you know, uh, Earlier today, I talked to Robert Mason, who he's in a couple of bands. One of them, he's the lead singer of Warrant these days, and he has been for a while. And they they have like a whole like summer planned. And I'm like, well, yeah, it, it, it I I can see, especially bands who can play like you know festivals and things like that. When you're on a bill, it makes sense. But I, the thing you're talking about is especially for up and coming bands of of any stature. Really, it, it's like. Uh, you know, how many dates can I play where I'm not going to, you know, go broke for it. And, right. you know, especially cause like, you know, usually a nice supplementary income would be like a, let's do a little VIP meet and greet backstage. Well, you really can't do that now, you know? So there's like, I can see how hard it is for the whole business to go forward. And obviously it's, you feel like we'll get to that point, but it's just, I guess the question of, of when, you know, and I can't not, if I, step into a place and people pay money for it. I'm the last one that leaves. I, I, I'm the last one on the tour bus because I will say hello and goodbye to every single person that wants to. <clears throat> I think it's important. Um, you know, even when we did the arena stuff and the outdoor with um, ZZ Top and Cheap Trick, we went over to merch. Someone wanted to come over. We waited. We waited. We said it's, it's to everyone who would want it to do it. Maybe we wouldn't do that if we were headlining that arena. Sure. But at this point, I still think it's important, and I still love that interaction and feeling like we're getting something from, you know, they're getting something more than just what they saw on stage. Well, I hope that uh, people are able to find the song right now and then they, you know, they do all the things they need to, you know, you subscribe to the YouTube page, you, you know, go find where, where's the best one-stop shop? Is it just a, a website where people can keep an eye on social media? How do they know when the next song comes out? That whole damn mess, everything. Okay. So that's, yeah, so that's good to, to have the consistency, to not have like whole damn mess underscore band, right. whole damn mess official. And, you know, because it's it's hard to keep track of all of it. So it's great yeah. that you have it everywhere. 
and then people know when the when there's more songs, when there's an album, when there's a tour, or, or any of the one-offs. So, uh, well, I appreciate you, Don, taking the time to talk. Obviously, I look forward to hearing more of the Thank album you. and uh, getting to talk again. Uh, hopefully, with some uh, dates to promote. But uh, just at Hold Them Mess, that's where they'll find everything, right? Yeah. Yes, thank you very much. Well, absolutely, and thank you, and uh, thanks to everybody who uh, tuned in. Well, those were both a lot of fun, and I hope that you enjoyed getting to hear those segments. As I mentioned at the top of the show, both of those interviews exist also in video form over on the Black House YouTube channel, so please subscribe. You'll also be able to find interviews that I've already done that'll make up our next two episodes. Uh, next week, you'll hear a full 90-minute conversation I had with a delightful up-and-coming singer-songwriter named Izzy Spring. Then the week after that, Blackcast 431, I'll spend the whole show with Robert Mason, who was once upon a time the lead singer in Lynch Mob, and he's been the lead singer of the band Warrant for more than a decade. He'll also tell us about the latest album from his band, The End Machine. But that's not right now. That's coming up over the next few weeks. So we will see you next time and the time after that on the Blackcast.